So I hope you guys all had a, a great week. Uh, this, the movie, you may have seen, the, uh, if there's a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger movie, I always have to go watch it. So there was a Stallone movie on Samaritan. It doesn't really have anything to do about the biblical Samaritans, but it's about a bro, you know, set of brothers. There's a good one, a bad one. That's kind of how this goes from a biblical perspective. There'd be the Jews in Jerusalem or Judah would be the good ones after uh, the northern exile, and then the Samaritans, why do they not like each other? So we're going to go through a little bit of the history of bloodlines uh, as we go in this class, bloodlines and battles. And so we're down here on the Samaritans, and my wife and I were watching uh, some kind of a, a show on the life of Christ. I only saw one episode so far, and it had a bunch of stuff with Samaritans in there, and why is there such animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans? So hopefully at the end of today, you'll understand where that comes from. So we're going to start with our objectives, and these will be the four major parts of your outline. We're going to look at a brief review, Bible History 101, just kind of go through that quick. Then we're going to look at the origin of the Samaritans, and then the captivity. And with Israel as a divided nation, there's the north and the south, each of them have a separate captivity that they go into, and then only the north gets restored and rebuilt. So that's kind of what we're going to look at. We'll start here with a brief review, a uh, look at Bible History 101, kind of the big picture in this cosmic war of good and evil. In our very first class, principle number one, God is sovereign. Multiple verses for this. Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has planned and who can frustrate it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And so I love this because it's talking about the sovereignty of God, but it's issuing a challenge. Uh, and Satan tries to pick this challenge up. Who can turn back the hand of God? Because if you can do that, you can lay claim to be the real God because you thwarted him. Of course, nobody can. Genesis 131, day six of creation, God saw all. That's a key word in any theology you're trying to make in your mind, realizing everything God created is good, all things. That would include Lucifer as of day six. So he was existing as Lucifer, and Ezekiel tells us he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found. So he was not created an evil being. He was created perfect. God states that very clear. Everything was perfect by day six. But eventually, Lucifer did want to become like the Most High, but that can't happen. So he fell. And Isaiah 42.8 tells us, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Number one, it is impossible to take the glory of God away from him. He is willing to share it and to give it, but it can't be usurped or taken. That is an impossible thing not consistent with reality. So of course, Satan fell, God kicked him out. You notice God was not interested in unity, he was interested in truth. Truth supersedes unity. But then Satan comes down, we have the temptation in the garden, Adam and Eve both fall, they're rejected out, but it was the fall of Adam that ushered sin and death into the world. Then we have in Genesis 3.15 this curse on the serpent where he will have his head crushed, rubbed, ground off. He gets a strike at the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will bruise you on the head. That will be a finishing blow. Number two, the seed of the woman will crush or destroy the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush or destroy the serpent. And here's a much better picture of David as a Na'ar. We talked about this a little bit. He's not a little boy. He's not a six-year-old kid. The armor wasn't too big. He was a warrior in the prime of his youth when he killed Goliath. 
Uh, and that's a Naar, a good picture of David. 2 Samuel 7, 16, speaking of the house of David, your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So Christ will ultimately fulfill this with an eternal throne. There's several statements of God, two big ones in the Old Testament. Here's one. We're only covering the bloodline. The other is the land. We're not going to worry so much about the land in this class. We're doing bloodlines. Number one is the bloodline. Here you see going from Adam down to Christ, it's all about the Alpha and the Omega. That's where this bloodline is all about. You notice it doesn't matter now, the bloodlines don't matter, because Christ has been born, the Messiah did his work. It has to go through Abraham, and then it has to go through David. So that is a promised line of God. Who else knows that? Satan, and what does he want to be? He wants to be God. So as he wants to be God, he has to do something to that bloodline. He is a goal-oriented being. He understands the promises of God through Judah, in Jerusalem, the line of David, where the Messiah will be. So he's going to do anything he can to disrupt that line of the Messiah. We'll look at a very interesting one next week where he does this. And you notice he wants to be God, so it's not just opposing God, but in place of God as the Antichrist. And you notice in the end of the tribulation, and we're not, that's not what this class is about, but in the tribulation, in the midpoint, where is the abomination of desolation? In the Jerusalem temple, because that's where God would be, and he's wanting to put himself in place of God. Number three, therefore Satan will attempt to destroy the bloodline of the Messiah. He will want to destroy the bloodline of the Messiah. So that's just a brief summary of overview. If you don't understand that, you can't understand the giants. You can't understand the Nephilim. You can't understand the conquest. You can't understand anything in the Old Testament if you don't understand that. That's key foundational stuff. Now we're going to talk about the Samaritans. What is their origin? I need to put things on a timeline. It helps me a lot when I'm reading through the Bible to put a timeline out, put pegs on holes, Are we accurate? Are we putting the right peg in the proper hole? So right about 1000 BC, you'd have King David. He is over a united Israel. So Jerusalem in the south, Israel in the north are all united in one kingdom. That doesn't last long. Solomon has it after Solomon, they divide. That will not be restored until Ezekiel 37 is completed. And that hasn't happened yet, by the way. That is yet future. Then you have King Ahab. Now, his father, Omri, is the one who actually starts the Samaritans at Samaria, but we all know Ahab, so I put him in there, uh, you know, 125 years after David. Then you have the north, which is Israel. The south would be Judah. The north, Israel, goes into Assyrian captivity. So you can go through world empires. The statue of Daniel starts next with Babylon. Assyria, Egypt were both before that. But Assyria is the world power. They take the north captive in 722. Then uh, you have Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. And there's three deportations of the South Jerusalem. We're not going into detail with those. The first is in 605. Why does Nebuchadnezzar not stay? Does anyone know? Why doesn't he destroy Jerusalem the first time in 605? His father dies back in 
Babylon, Nabopolassar was his father. He died, so he couldn't stay and destroy all of Jerusalem. He had to skedaddle back to Babylon to secure his kingdom. But then he comes back, and there's three trips, one in about 597 and then 586. And this is where they destroy, they knock down the walls, they destroy the temple, and they just demolish everything with Jerusalem. Well, we're starting here with King Ahab and his father, Omri. This is where the Samaritans come from. 1 Kings chapter 16. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. So this is after David, after Solomon. You have civil war. You got Jerusalem in the south. Israel is up in the north. And they've had a couple civil wars going on. We're not going to get into the detail of that. But they were split into two factions now. Half supported Tibni for king, and the other half supported Omri. That would be Ahab's father. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of the house of Tibni. So if you're stronger, what do you do? You become king. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, so they'll go back and forth. So Judah is the south, that's Jerusalem. North Israel is Omri. He is now king over Israel. He reigned for 12 years, six years at this place called Terza, and he purchased the hill Samaria from Shemer. Shemer is some guy for two talents of silver built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria. That's the origin of the Samaritans right here on this hill, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. So it's named after a guy. Number four, Omri, king of Israel, built Samaria. Very simple, but we'll see how this moves over time. How about Omri? How was he in the sight of God? There's not a single good king in the north of Israel. Now Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and you'll see this progression happen all through here. He acted more wickedly than all who were before him. And then his son Ahab is going to get even worse. Here we see the divided kingdom. You have Jerusalem and Judah on the south. Up on the north is what's called Israel. And so they're just divided that way. That's the north. So he started in Terza, but then he bought this hill, so he moved the capital to Samaria. So when you read most of the Old Testament, it'll talk about Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. What nationality of people are living there now? I mean, at this time. Israel. That'd be the ten northern tribes. Are they Jews? Yes. Those are Jews living in Samaria where uh, Omri built the capital. So Omri died, he slept with his fathers, was buried in Samaria. They moved their capital there, and Ahab, his son, became king. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. He gets this labeled on him twice. He's worse than Omri. He's worse than all of them before him. This is now Ahab. So Ahab, in 1 Kings 16, we're going to go through a little more Just as it had been, or as though it had been a trivial thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians. We're going to talk more about that next week. And Ahab went. He didn't stay. He went. He goes out to seek and serve Baal and worshiped Baal. So here you see the founding of Samaria is based on what? Baal, not Yahweh. So he, Ahab, erected an altar for Baal at the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. 
Ahab also made the Asherah. So you'll see the Baals and the Asherah. The Asherah is the female side of this. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of Israel to anger than all the kings were before him. He gets that label put in there twice. He marries Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal or Etbaal. The Sidonians. Who are the Sidonians? Tyre and Sidon. The Phoenicians, they're a world power. They were undefeated until Nebuchadnezzar, and they weren't finally demolished until Alexander. So they were a powerful, that's the navy. The Phoenicians have the best navy in the world, kind of like the Britons did, uh, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s. And so he built this house to Baal in Samaria. The centerpiece of Samaria is Baal worship. He served Baal and worshiped him. Number five, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal thus importing Baal worship into Israel. Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, importing Baal worship. How about this Ethbaal king of the Sidonians? Where do the Sidonians come from? So here you see the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon. Here's Jerusalem, there's Samaria. There's Tyre and Sidon, that's the Phoenicians. You can see it there, Phoenicia. Sons of Ham, remember Ham with his father Noah. Ham was the one that had the issue with Noah uh, when he was drunk and naked. And Ham wasn't cursed, but Ham's son Canaan was cursed. Canaan is the father of Sidon. That is where the Phoenicians come from. So it always helps me to kind of look at where these people groups come from, why they kind of do the things they do. So these people are not interested in Yahweh worship. Ethbaal. Baal is my God, I am with Baal, he is with me. So Ethbaal is the king and the priest of Tyre at this point. And there's a couple different Ethbaals. One of those in a different unrelated thing is what God is speaking to in Ezekiel 28. God does this with Eth, that Ethbaal speaking to him addressing Lucifer. He does the same thing in Isaiah passage speaking to a king of Babylon addressing Lucifer. We're not going to get into that, but that's the lineage of this, these three Ethbaals that happen over a couple different centuries. So here's a temple altar to Baal. And of course, Baal worship is associated with all sorts of other gods, but this is what they're bringing in. And here I just put around the area, uh, so you have Baal here, you have Baal Shaman, uh, the sky god. It's interesting. He's the god of the ground and fertility. Bowls are productive. They're fer fertile. So it's, uh, there's a lot of stuff about life, but he's also a sky god and in charge of weather, which is things God, that the Bible grants to Satan. It's pronounced Bel from Syria, and that goes down to Egypt, and then Belos in Greece, which is associated with Zeus. You'll see there's a lot of these that intertwine, they're part of the same. Then there's the female versions, Anath and Athena are different beings, but they're quite related as female warrior goddesses, and then Asherah is a female one here in the Mesopotamian area. We're not going to get into the various gods, but that's a fascinating field of study, but the concept is syncretism. What is that word? That's a combination of different forms of belief or practice. You'll see in the ancient world, there's all sorts of blending of these people. We all know Satan's ultimately the guy. Zeus is Satan. He is the serpent. And Jesus Christ himself identifies that in the book of Revelation. But we're not getting into that. Syncretism is having different things gemushed together to destroy what is holy. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 31. This is now as they're coming into the promised land. 
When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their God, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I might do likewise? You shall not behave thus to the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods." For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods, which would include Moloch. God is saying we do not allow syncretism. The Jewish system, they're holy. God is holy. He's set apart. Syncretism blends things together. God wants us to be holy, not blended with the world, not blended with these Canaanite deities. That destroys the holy. Number six. Syncretism is a subtle yet highly effective way for Satan to destroy the holy worship of God. Very simple. With syncretism, you are blended. If you are blended, you are not set apart. You can't be both blended and set apart at the same time. So if you allow syncretism and blending, you destroy the holy. So that's the origin of the Samaritans, from Ahab's father, uh, Omri, who built the city, and then Ahab imports, he consciously chooses to import Baal worship into the north with Samaria. But what's the nationality of the Samaritans as of that point? They're Jewish. They're all Israel. They're the ten northern tribes. Now we're going to start moving into captivity as we kind of move through history and see what happens. So here is the Assyrian Empire in the dark. Assyria's capital is Nineveh. Uh, There's Jerusalem, and so above that is where Samaria would be. The north gets taken captive by Assyria. 2 Kings 17. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria, besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile into Assyria. He settled them in these various places up in the Assyrian kingdom. He carried the Israelites, the Jews, out. Did he take the south from Judah? No. Uh, And we'll cover that one. That's a very interesting one where the angel of the Lord actually defends Jerusalem. He takes the north, called Israel, the ten tribes. Number seven, Assyria conquered Israel and deported the Israelites, scattering them throughout Assyria. So you have to remember when you're reading the Old Testament, after the divided kingdom, the north is called what? Israel. What's the south called? Judah. Is Judah captive yet? No. The north, Israel, is captive, but there's still Israelites. Where are they? Down south in Judah. Where did all the Israelites go that were in the north? They get chucked up into Assyria and dispersed around. And so they get dispersed all around into Assyria. From this point on, there's never again a group of Jews that come back to the north. The south will come back out of Babylon, but the north, Israel, never does come back. Second Kings 17. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and Cuthah and Ava and from Hamath and Servim, all these places, settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria in the place of Israel. So now what nationality of people are living in Israel, which is Samaria is the capital, but in the north? Non-Israelites. 
Okay, so they're not have any blood to Israel. They don't belong to Abraham. They're whole different lines, all these different people groups. Put the Israelites out, new dudes in. That's what Assyria did. At the beginning of their living there, all these Assyrian people who now are moved in to Israel, they did not fear the Lord. This is kind of interesting. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them but killed some of them. Hmm. Well, if you're in charge of that, hey, well, golly gee, we got to solve this riddle. So what do they do? The king of Assyria commanded, saying, take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, let him go and live there down in Israel. Let him teach the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. One dude. He's going to take care of the whole nation, right? That is fascinating to think. So you got guys being eaten by lions, so the king says, we can't have that, let's solve it. Huh, we want to destroy Israel, that's what we're doing, but I'm having a problem because the dudes I sent down there are getting eaten by lions, so we're gonna send one priest. I mean, talk about peeing in the wind. One priest for the whole kingdom, that's not gonna do anything. Number eight, the king of Assyria was interested in promoting what? Holiness or syncretism in the worship of Yahweh? Syncretism, that's right. He's interested in syncretism. They want to destroy it. That's what they're doing. They just don't want to kill other people from wild animals. I like emphasizing words, but, but something happened. But every nation still made God. So they sent one singular, one priest came down, but all these people from different nations still made little g-gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places where the people of Samaria had made, every nation in which they lived. So what nationality is Samaria from here on out? All sorts of Assyrian stuff, it doesn't matter. Are they Israel? No, they're not Jews. There's one Jew there. He's a single priest. And they don't really care. They'll listen enough to satisfy God so that the animals don't kill them. Um, but they're not interested in being holy. These are the people of Samaria. They feared the Lord a little bit. We'll see later. It's not very much. They served their own gods according to the custom of the nations among whom they had been carried away into exile. So there's a little bit of God here, but not much. So it's syncretism with a heavy dose of Assyria not much of Yahweh, and they served their own gods. However, they didn't listen to that priest. They did according to their earlier custom. And you see what always happens on the slippery slide. The children are worse than the parents, and the grandchildren are worse, and it gets worse and worse and worse. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So that's what's going on with Samaria. So we look at a timeline 722 is when uh, the Assyrians take the north captive, and then they repopulate with non-Jews. So here we see our little divided kingdom again. There's where the capital used to be. Omri moved it as he built Samaria. And then there's this other interesting town, Shechem. So this was Shemer after a guy. Shechem is different. Shechem is a city that's been there. That's where Abraham went. That's where Isaac went. And that's where when they came out of Egypt, which would be down here, they came around the Dead Sea and came across the Jordan River. The children of Israel, as they enter the Promised Land, they go to Shechem. You got Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim right there. There's Shechem with the two mountains on either side, and you read about that in the Old Testament. Ebal is the evil, the bad. If you do not do what's written in my word, this is God speaking to them as they entered into the conquest way before the divided kingdom now. 
If you do what is evil, it's like Mount Ebal. But if you do what is good, you read my word, I will give you blessing. That is Mount Gerizim. So you have a good, you have a bad, and you have Shechem down here in the middle. This comes up in the New Testament. John 4, Jesus is walking around. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, whoa, this is kind of weird. How is it that you, being a Jew, speak to me, A, as a woman, B, as a Samaritan? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus initiates this conversation with this lady. We move on. The woman said to him, this is after he told her all the stuff, and she now perceives, I see, I'm skipping part of the story here, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people, you Jews from Judah, because we're not Israelites, you Jews say that people need to worship in Jerusalem. What mountain were they on? Mount Gerizim. Goes back to the Old Testament, right by Shechem. Here's Mount Gerizim, this is what we're doing from way back at the conquest days. So we worship here on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say, no, it's got to be Jerusalem. We have to remember the concept of progressive revelation. God will say things here, but then he can change and change the rules. Cain, did he knew what was right, and he killed his brother Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous and his were wicked. He knew what was right. He rejected what was right. He didn't do what God asked him to do. The same thing here. Yes, this is when we came into the conquest, but that was before the United Kingdom with David. You have David, you have Solomon. Now where did God put the temple? Jerusalem. There ain't no temple in Samaria. God never authorized a temple in Samaria. God said it now goes to Jerusalem. Holy, set apart, one spot. Syncretism wants two, more than one, blending. We're going to hold to what sounded good, Mount Gerizim, but that is not the way God revealed it over time. It now was crystallized in Jerusalem. So she has a point, but it's an invalid point. It's got to be holy in Jerusalem. So now we see this syncretism coming in. These people aren't even Jews anyway. Multiple religions all gemished together with a little bit of Yahweh. And that's the way of Cain, to know and understand the will of God, yet to reject it with your fist up in the air. That is the way of Cain. So go more to Matthew in the, in the New Testament. The 12, Jesus had just appointed his 12 disciples. <clears throat> and Jesus sent them out after instructing them, do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What are they supposed to do to the Samaritans? Do not go up and preach them the word. That's fascinating. They're excluded. And who's giving the orders here? The Alpha and the Omega. As you go, preach the kingdom of heaven's hand. Are they preaching that to the Samaritans? No, the Samaritans have no part in that kingdom. It's an Israel thing. It has nothing to do with the Gentiles and the, uh, the Samaritans. As you go preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the kingdom? Notice we're in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew goes chronological. We'll go to number nine. Matthew traces out the various offerings of the kingdom in chronological fashion. You can read the temptation of Christ. Matthew and Luke. Matthew is chronological. He uses the word then. 
Luke is not chronological. He'll use the word end. Luke is not a chronological book. Matthew is. So Matthew 10, if you notice the Beatitudes 5, 6, 7, what's the topic? Kingdom. Is there any mention in any three chapters of the word faith or believe? No. It's works. What is this kingdom? You already have to have faith. It's stuff on top. It's the meat above the milk. That's what kingdom is. Chapter 10, what is the sermon? The kingdom is here. It's chapter 12. If you're, at, uh, if you're looking at Matthew, it's chapter 12 in order when the Jews the, in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the official power, they reject the king and the kingdom. At that point, the kingdom is never offered again. It's always offered. John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is here. Chapter 10, the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's only here for the Jews. Chapter 12, the Jews reject it. Now the kingdom is withdrawn. It's never offered again except for a few other things that are a little esoteric. But the kingdom is not preached again, and it's in after chapter 12 that Jesus speaks in parables for the purpose that you will not understand the kingdom. Jesus didn't use parables to teach clarity. He used them to hide the kingdom. Number nine, we already did that one. So now we're on Luke 9. Remember, Luke is not chronological. Here's a great way to prove it. The days were approaching for his ascension. He's getting close to his ascension. Wait, that's an early Luke, 9. See, he puts things around that if you just read through it, you think it's chronological. Luke is not chronological. He, Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But, but what? But something happens. They, the Samaritans, did not receive him. Why? Because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. He's going through Samaria. He's going to Jerusalem. And was he thinking about Jerusalem or was he dead set on Jerusalem? He was determined. He's dead set to get to Jerusalem. So he wants to get to Jerusalem and he's just going through Samaria. Yes, he could deal with them. There's individual interactions, but that's different than a whole scale welcoming. These are the Samaritans and they're mad. They say, no, we don't even want you here. So his disciples, James and John, when they saw that Jesus is rejected by the Samaritans, they said, hey, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down? It happened in this same spot several hundred years ago with Elijah. Should we call heaven down and consume them? Of course, Jesus said, no, that's not why we're here, and he rebukes them for that. Um, but it's not to preach the kingdom to the Samaritans yet. Acts 1. So at the beginning of Acts, Jesus teaches about one topic. What is it? The kingdom. He's teaching about the kingdom um, in Acts. As he's just finished that, so when they, the disciples had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Notice it's a restoration. The kingdom that went from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome gets restored to who? Israel. Not the Samaritans, not anyone else. It's going to get restored to Israel. It's, notice he doesn't say, yes, the church is now the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom. And they understood it because he'd been talking about that in Acts. This is after he was dead, after he was resurrected, but before he was ascended. And he's saying, 
or they're asking, is now the time that you're restoring the kingdom specifically to Israel? Because they understood what the kingdom is about. We're confused about it in our culture today. Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed. But, so when you have a but and you think and you stop about it, now you can get your thinking a little more clear. It is not for you to know the times, but there's something else you must know. What is that? So they're asking, is now the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? No. He's saying, no, it's not for you to know the times, but no, this is not the time that we're restoring the kingdom to Israel yet, but there is something else that must happen. What is that? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and where? Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. See how God operates differently in different times? When is this? That's Pentecost. That is after he has ascended and glorified. So they're not going preaching this stuff to the Samaritans until it reaches the proper time in history. And he's saying, no, that's not now. And you're not going to know exactly when the kingdom will come, but you will receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and now you will start to go to the lost Gentiles, including the Samaritans. How many Jews were in Samaria? None. I mean, there's probably a couple, but it was all Gentile people that came from Assyria. When the Holy Spirit comes, that's Pentecost, after his ascension. You can't avoid the concept of dispensations. Simply look at how Jesus deals with the Samaritans and you realize crystal clear, Jesus deals with different people groups differently in different eras, different dispensations of history. It's unavoidable. So we look at a timeline, helps me a lot. You go from eternity all the way over. These are the 70 weeks or the seven year periods of Daniel. Okay, so Daniel has his vision when he's in captivity. There's the crucifixion comes to a close. The triumphal entry and the crucifixion, that closes the 69th set of seven years from Daniel. Then you have the seven-year tribulation time. That's the, the, what is that called? The time of whose trouble? Jacob's. Jacob's other name is? Israel. So God is going to be dealing primarily with Israel. Yes, Gentiles will be involved. Then you have the kingdom. And it'll go into eternity, but it'll come to an end here at a thousand years, and then it'll go into eternity with two phases. So we have a mystery in the Old Testament. What Paul will talk about with a mystery is something not mentioned by the Old Testament prophets. For instance, resurrection is in the Old Testament several times. Would that be a mystery? No. But the rapture is different. It is not mentioned in the Old Testament. The rapture is a mystery. The church is a mystery. The church doesn't take over the kingdom. The church is a mystery that simply gets put right here because the kingdom was rejected. So there's where the mystery, this is now the age of the Gentiles. Notice the birth of the church was a mystery, not in the Old Testament. It gets shoehorned in. The exit of the church, the rapture, also is an exit. And then God resumes the 70th week of Daniel. It's very simple. Then they're talking about the kingdom. When would Jesus say you now deal with the Samaritans? Not in this epoch, only once this one starts, which is the birth of the church, which is when what happened? The Holy Spirit comes down after Jesus was ascended. You see that? 
That's the birth of the church. So now we're looking at Samaritans who at the beginning with Ahab, they were Jews. But then when the Assyrians chucked them out into Assyria and dispersed them, they replaced them with non-Jews. And they were after synchronism and destroying Yahweh is what Satan's plot was. So now we see where Ahab fits. Then we've seen where the north Israel was taken captive. The next segment, the next kingdom is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the crown of gold. And so he has three deportations that happen here. There's your bloodline. Who knows that this all goes down to the Messiah? Who's that? Satan does. So Satan is well aware of this bloodline. He sees what this is. And what is this guy going to do? crush his head. So he's going to do everything he can to destroy this bloodline. He's trying to do it through the uh, adulterating the way they worship. But there's books, scrolls, scripture. God has revealed the truth. Daniel is a master of understanding the word. I, Daniel, observed in the books, that means the scrolls, that's what was written, the number of years which was revealed. So he is now taken captive. Daniel is a captive in Babylon. He went in the first wave at 605, but he's reading scrolls. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah, that would be the scroll of Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolation in Jerusalem, 70 years. So the completion of the 70 years, the desolation of Jerusalem is just about done. How on earth could he know that? He read it in the book of Jeremiah. How many years are they going to be in captivity? 70. 70. It's written in black and white. You notice how people make things more complicated than they need to? Daniel understood it simple. He observed in the books what God had written to Jeremiah. You're going to be captive for 70 years. Number 10. Daniel demonstrated the importance of studying the Bible every day. So he's reading Jeremiah. The whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There it is. It's in there twice. It's all about fallow ground. 490 years went where they didn't do the Sabbath year rest, so they're supposed to work the ground for six years. The seventh let it lay fallow. That was a command of God. They didn't do that for 490 years, so God said, okay, if you're not going to give your land rest, I will make it have rest. So 490 divided by seven gives you the 70 years that the land will have 70 Sabbaths, 70 years without you working it because you didn't follow my law. God's law will be followed whether you like it or not at some point in time. So here's the timeline. Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel captive here, and it's in 586 that he comes and destroys uh, Babylon. King Cyrus now would be the Persians, the silver that destroys the head of gold. He takes over in 539. So here you have the 70-year captivity. It starts in 605, and then you have the foundation of the temple laid in 535. That's the 70 years right there right after Cyrus takes over Babylon. So that brings us to the point of now starting to see the rebuilding. So was the north ever rebuilt? No. And they're filled by non-Israelite people, a bunch of Gentiles of the south. Judah will be rebuilt. So here you have Assyria that takes the north captive, and they're gone and dispersed. Babylon, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, he takes Judah... And he takes these people into Babylon. Daniel was one of them. Ezekiel was one of them. He takes those people in in different waves. 
but then they get restored. The north was never restored. Jerusalem in the south is what is restored by legitimate Jews coming back. So after this point, when the Bible talks about Israel, it ain't talking about this anymore. It blends it back with this. But you have to understand the history when you just read something to know what Israel is even being talked about. Number 11. In the Old Testament, there never was any rebuilding of Israel, the north, after their dispersion into Assyria. So the south will rebuild Solomon's temple, but not in its formal glory. It'll be a shadow of what used to be. And then the second thing is they got to put walls around the city, Jerusalem, to protect it. So now we're in Jeremiah. Remember, Daniel was reading Jeremiah. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, second time, the 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, you guys here, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah is writing before the captivity, and then Daniel is in the captivity. Well, how are they going to come back? Who's the guy? Cyrus. It is I, God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He's not a king. Yes, he's a king with a crown, but I'm the sovereign one, and he will perform all of my desire And Cyrus will decree of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. This is in Isaiah. It's a long time before Cyrus is even born. Still in Isaiah 45, he, Cyrus, will build my city and let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. Why? Who works for free? God is sovereign. God is a sovereign God. The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, Proverbs 21.1. He turns it wherever he wishes. God has a sovereign plan. Number 12, God declared that Cyrus would decree the rebuilding of the temple 140 years before his birth, 200 years before it happened. He was 60 when he took over Babylon. So now we go to Ezra. The book Ezra is talking about the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra doesn't come until after. He does a a revival, but he's giving the history. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Not Babylon? Remember, Cyrus conquered Babylon. So now the kingdom was united under David, divided with Solomon, and then the north is taken captive. The kingdom transfer starts with Babylon because Assyria never had Jerusalem. It's all about Jerusalem. So the statue of Daniel, the gold, Babylon is the first one, not Assyria, not Egypt, because they never controlled Jerusalem. So the kingdom was united with David. That will be what's restored at the end. But now it moves from Babylon to Persia to the Macedonians to Rome and then Christ at the end. That's just a bit. We're not talking about the kingdom, but it's just you have to put it in perspective. Cyrus now has already conquered Babylon. There's Zerubbabel. He's in the line of what? Line of kings. But you notice he don't have a crown, so he's a leader, he's in charge, he's of the kingly descent, but he is not officially a king. But he's actually a good leader, and he helps rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But he, remember the curse on Jeconiah, the last king, you cannot belong to this bloodline and rule, but of course that's a virgin birth that gives us Jesus. 
So Zerubbabel gets the foundation laid in 535 BC. Remember it was 539 that Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. So now in Ezra 3, yet many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen Solomon's temple, the old dudes had seen that, They had a 70-year captivity, but remember, 605, it was 586 that they burned the temple. So you got another 30 years there that these old dudes could see that temple. They wept. This is garbage. This temple stinks compared to the old one. They're weeping, but the young people didn't know any better. Hey, this is pretty cool. We got a temple. And it's all this mix of mourning and weeping. It's cool. It's getting rebuilt, but it's a shadow of the former glory. It's the foundation is laid in 535. So here we go back to our timeline. Now we're looking at King Cyrus in 539, he takes over Babylon. In his first year, so it's in the year of 539, in his first year, it's 538 by the time it happens, is his decree, and the temple foundation is built in 535. So there you have your 70-year captivity, right to the dot. It's when the foundation was built, the captivity is said to be over. But the temple is not done for another 20 years because there's legal wrangling and fighting, but the foundation was laid. And then Ezra doesn't show up till several years after that. But we're supposed to be talking about the Samaritans, right? So you have to understand how some of these things move and how real Israelites, now Jews, have been sent back from Babylon to rebuild two things. A, the temple. B, the walls to protect Jerusalem. Where do the Samaritans fit into all this? Oh, that's right. They're the enemies of Judah sitting all in the area. And of course, when the Jews were removed from Jerusalem, who's going to move in? The Samaritans just move south and take over the free land. Now, when the enemies of Judah, this is the Samaritans, and Benjamin, uh, Judah and Benjamin were together down there, heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. The enemies of Judah, the Samaritans, they approached Zerubbabel of the line of the kings, but not technically a king, but he's the leader rebuilding the temple. And the heads of the father's household and said to them, hey, let's do some syncretism here. Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. That's Sennacherib's father. Several hundred years ago, 722. See, we're in like 530. 722 BC, almost 300 years ago, we were sent here to worship God. Yeah, but it was syncretism. It wasn't the real holy worship. They're claiming a historical stake to help rebuild Jerusalem. Syncretism. Zerubbabel is a good leader. Stiff arms. No, no, no. We're not going to work with you. We are holy and set apart to Yahweh. And he rejects the Samaritans as they rebuild the temple. But, what? But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, leaders of the Jews and Israel said, you have nothing. Yes, you're wanting to build with us, but you will not. You have nothing in common with us in building a house to the Lord our God. We go back to Cyrus saying, we can rebuild it, having nothing to do with you. We are holy. We will not accept syncretism. 
Then the people of the land, the Samaritans, discouraged the people of Judah, their enemies, and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, who comes after him, king of Persia. They're discouraging them. So who is opposing the rebuilding of the temple? The Samaritans. They wanted to syncretize it, but when you won't allow syncretism, then we're going to try to prevent They have no interest in Yahweh. They're trying to destroy it. Why? Oh, there's a guy behind the scenes that you don't even hear about with the Samaritans, but that's who's controlling what's going on. 13, one battle within the cosmic war is over syncretism versus holiness in worship. Very straightforward. Now, the Samaritans hire counselors. Tatnai is the governor of the providence over there, and so it's legal stuff now. So they're going to get into a legal... No, it's a new king now. It used to be Cyrus, but now it's Darius, a new king over Persia. So they say, okay, let's talk about this stupid order you have to rebuild. That was years ago. Then King Darius issued a decree, because he doesn't know, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, Ekbatana. It's up high, altitude, dry, good storage for scrolls. In the fortress, which is in the province of Media, remember the Medes and the Persians was the empire, a scroll was found, and there it was written as follows, memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retrained. There's more detail of that. We're just looking at the big picture. Let the temple be rebuilt. Who said that? Cyrus had said that, and now King Darius finds the legal thing, so he says to Tatani, hey, cut your garbage, and you actually got to help pay for it. So that's what happens here, is the temple gets rebuilt. Ezra comes later. He didn't rebuild the temple, but he brings a revival of the worship of Yahweh. After that is going to be Nehemiah. So you see, he's another 15 years after Ezra, and he does the wall. Now we're in Nehemiah, but he's not in Jerusalem yet. He's still in Babylon, or or he's in Persia. And it came about at the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Notice this is another king now. Artaxerxes had Cyrus, then Darius, now it's Artaxerxes. The wine was before the king. Nehemiah is the uh, guy that tests the wine. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, because if you're sad in the presence of the king, your head gets chopped off. They don't allow pouting. We should probably enforce that rule. So the king said to me, why is your face sad when you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. This is pouting. So Nehemiah, rightly so, is very afraid. Uh Uh-oh, I kind of acted the way I felt. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So the king says, okay, he must have kind of liked Nehemiah. What do you request? Nehemiah knew what he was doing. What do you do? Now, he doesn't go retreat for three weeks and come back. This is quick, but his mindset is not on his own ability to solve a problem. It is on prayer to God. And he requests, I came to the governors of the, prince of the provinces. The, the king gives him a decree. And he, look, I got the paper. Now from King Artaxerxes, we're going to build the wall. 
Who cares if you have a stupid paper? Oh, by the way, the king sent officers and army and horsemen. This is going to be enforced. When Sanballat, he's the governor, he's a Horonite. Where's Horonium? That is from Moab. We'll show a map in a little bit later. He, Sanballat and Tobiah the Ammonite official, they heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. Enemies. These are Samaritans. He is the governor of Samaria. Tobiah the Ammonite. Watch, we're just going to look how they keep adding to their number, opposing. So you had Sanballat and Tobiah, and now an Arab guy in charge of Arabs comes. What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered and said, the God of heaven will give us success. We will arise and build. You are not part of us. We're not going to go with syncretism, and we're not going to let you stop us. We're holy. They add more. So you've got Sanballat, the Moabite. You have Tobiah. The Ammonite, you have the Arabs, you have more Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. What's Ashdod? Ekron, Gath, Gaza. Philistines. Uh, That's the Philistines. So now the Philistines are coming into the fray. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance. So they want to rebuild Jerusalem, but look who's around them. You have the governor is from Moab, but he's up in Samaria. Then you have the Ammonites, and then you have the Arabs, and then you have the Philistines with the Ashdodites. Everybody but Edom is going in there to block the building of the walls of Jerusalem. But, but what? We prayed. We were totally surrounded and outnumbered, but we prayed. And because of them, we set up a guard night and day. But they prayed. Number 14. The centerpiece of Nehemiah's successful battle strategy was prayer. Totally surrounded by what people groups? The Samaritans leading all sorts of other people that we'll look at next week who actually stem a lot of them from uh, what should be good people. But they end up miraculously rebuilding the wall in less than a year. So in summary, what we did is looked at Bible history. There's God, there's Satan, and Satan wants to thwart primarily the seed of the woman because that's what crushes his head. The origin of the Samaritans started with Omri, Pershing a hill, named it after the dude, but then his son Ahab starts bringing massive wickedness, imports, consciously, specifically imports Baal worship into the north of Samaria. And because they didn't follow the law, the north in 722 was taken captive into Assyria. The south later in 586 is taken into Babylon. Only the south comes to rebuild the holy place where we should worship, not Mount Gerizim anymore, but Jerusalem, and that gets rebuilt. Amazing to watch the sovereignty of God weave through history, but hopefully that gives us a little bit of understanding of the Samaritans and why there's this fight and hatred between them. So we better pray uh, and get out of here. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your word, how it just presents history straightforward. We just have to do work to kind of put the pieces together, but it all makes sense. And thank you that you love us. Thank you that we have the opportunity uh, in this era to cry out to you and you're calling us. Help us to respond to your call and seek you and want to follow your word. In Jesus' name, amen.